Well, good morning once again, second service Sunday morning. How are we doing today? Good morning. Well, we are, uh, we're excited to have this morning with you. Um, we're excited that you are spending your uh, Sunday morning, 1030 time frame with us, and we're excited for what uh, God has in store for us this morning. I truly believe that every single one of you are, are here for a reason this morning. Every single one of you are loved, prayed for, and cared for before you walk into this room. And so I'm excited. I hope that we all come with uh, excited expectation of how God has moved, is moving, and will move throughout this service. And so with that said, I want to kind of set the, the scene of our three-week series that we are starting this morning. And the series is called Resetting the Table, and the subtitle is How Three Meals with Jesus Changed Everything. It's Thanksgiving. We wanted to kind of have a table theme, uh, but really to, uh, to emphasize that idea, I want to share a little bit about when I was working at Macaroni Grill, um, and I don't know why that's funny. I mean, they don't exist anymore. There's one with it. Anyways, it's a... Uh, it's a sore subject. Um, their bread's fantastic. Uh, we had this, uh, when I worked at Macaroni and Grill, you know, I, I started as a host and then I became a, a, a server eventually. And if we think about just the restaurant industry for a moment and think about what the table means in the context of a restaurant. Typically, when it comes to a restaurant, what it is is that someone sets the table before you show up, they take you to your seat, they get you uh, your beverages, and they start getting food. Then they kind of, it's not that they don't want you to hang out for a while, but the quicker they can reset the table, the quicker they can get more people to come in, the more money they can make. And so it's this idea of um, that a restaurant, a table at a restaurant is more akin to a gas station that's fueling us on the way to where we, quote, really are supposed to go. Almost this idea that we, we just need, okay, just fill us up, we gotta go, and that's even more so seen in, in, in fast food restaurants, obviously, but this idea of that the table becomes within the restaurant, and if we're honest, and for many of us, even within our own homes, the food does not become a place for fellowship. Or sorry, the table is not a place for fellowship. The table is a place to fuel us before we go to soccer practice or to choir rehearsal or to drama or to whatever it may be. It's a fueling station rather than a place for relationships. And so when Jesus talks about the table or when he's eating at a table, he doesn't see it as a means to an end, a fueling station on the route to where he was really supposed to go. But the table... The idea of a banquet is not a mean to one's end. It is the end. It is the relationship over a table that he came so we may have communion with one another. It's a table that we eat together that is a picture of the kingdom of God as a banquet where there's food. And it's not about resetting the table and what's the next people to come in. It's that this is where we've always meant to be that we break bread together. And so resetting the table is this idea that over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at different stories through the gospel of Luke specifically and three conversations over the table, over a meal that changed perceptions, that reset people's mindsets, and it could change the trajectories of generations. If we took hold of what Jesus was teaching us as he resets the table, not to rush us out and keep going, but to rest and to have communion and fellowship with him. Because table fellowship meant relationship with those that you are sitting next to. 
And that causes tension for many people, which we'll dive into in just a few moments. But before we do, will you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word together? Father, we thank you so much that you are here in this place. We thank you for um, the opportunity that we have to be able to be still, to hear your voice, to recognize that you love every person that is in this room, that no one is in here by accident. You love every person that's listening online, and they're not listening online by accident either. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak in a powerful, personal, and impactful way to each person. I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would just work and have your way in our lives. So Father, please guide us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us. Whatever we need from you, may we receive it. And may we rejoice that you are with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 15. And so if you want to kind of put a bulletin in one or the other, we're going to be in both. We're going to start in Luke 5 though. But as you're kind of getting situated there, I want to share a little bit of a story about when I was really sick, but we needed to find out what it was and we couldn't figure it out. And so when I was a seventh grader, I may have shared this before, but, but when I was in seventh grade, I ended up missing 60 days of school, six zero days of school. And so it was one of those where, you know, I did well enough when I was there and the teacher kind of understood that there was uh, a sickness, but, but she, you know, I was able to move forward with my classmates. Um, and again, I, I did fine while I was there, but I missed 60 days of school and it was because I would wake up and I would have this, just this stomach pain and it would hurt and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was causing it. And so my parents, we started to get tests and we tried to figure out, you know, is it this kind of thing or is it this? I had to drink uh, barium, which, uh, thank you. Yes, you've all experienced this. It's, it's like sadness in a cup. And so you just had to drink it and then you have to like, they do an x-ray. It was very unfortunate. Um, but it was just this idea of just, it, it was another test. And again, nothing came up with what was wrong. And so it wasn't until near the end of the 60 day period that, um, I had a food allergy test and it turned out that I was allergic to peanut butter, which you may as well have just cut off my right leg. Like I love peanut butter. I was someone who had, um, a jar, a jar, a spoon, and I would just eat it. I would I would only do one spoonful at a time for those of you who are thinking that's disgusting because you're right, it is. But I would have one spoonful at a time and I would eat it like every day. And I didn't know that that was what was causing me to get sick. And so for five years, I just, I didn't have any peanut butter. Um, and there's a redemption story. I'm better with peanut butter now, but that's for another day. Um, but this idea of, I didn't, I knew I was sick, but I didn't know what was wrong. But coincidentally, about a year after that, and not related to it, but this idea that I also, around eighth grade is when I started being really depressed and, and really struggling with suicidal thoughts. And, and I've shared that here before. Um, but in that depression, it was one of those where it's like, it wasn't a sickness on the outside that we had to figure out the symptoms for. It was something on the inside that I didn't know how to define. That all of a sudden it was like this weight, this darkness, this bleakness, this lack of hope that came on, and it wasn't something that you can as readily see on the outside. It wasn't like I missed 60 days worth of school with depression. It's one that you just kind of go about your life and you just try to make it through. And it was an underlying underbelly of a, of a sickness that was devastating, and, and I was able to, by the grace of God, get through that, but not everyone has that redemption story. 
But I use these two examples because they're two different examples of this idea of being sick. One is obvious on the outside. We try to figure out what's going on. One is not so obvious. It's on the inside and we need to dive in deeper. And the reason I bring that up is that this morning, many of us, when we actually get sick, like when we have a flu or when we have a cold, we're most contagious when we aren't showing symptoms yet. Right? Like that's how come diseases spread is because we've already been exposed. We're already exposing others. And then that's when we get the stuffy nose or the sore throat or things like that. And so that's on the outside type of symptoms, but there are symptoms on the inside. There are things that are mindsets that can be underlying underbellies of what we perceive things to be that can spread like a sickness. Things like like the idea that we're better than other people, where at least we're not like them. Things maybe like being complacent and thinking, well, I'm, I'm pretty good the way I am and I'm willing to just stay where I am for as long as I can. Maybe it's the idea of, of just missing the point of what it means to follow Jesus. That maybe we could be convinced that it's about not doing bad things and not taking hold of the right thing that God has for us. Maybe we could think that it has more to do with doing a checklist and then getting rid of the bad stuff rather than taking hold of what it means to truly have life and life eternal, life abundant and overflowing, that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that we may have life and life to the full. And so for our purposes this morning, the the meal that we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 5, in which Jesus talks about healthy and sick people. And so for our main point is that most of us know that Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. But most of us don't know how he defines the sick and the healthy. We know he came for them. We don't know how he defines it, but how he defines it changes everything. And so in our notes, we continue on to the next part is how we define the sick and healthy or our definition of the sick and healthy. And so we're going to read uh, Luke 5, 27 through 32. If you're familiar with the Gospels, this is a story that will be familiar with you or to you. But we're going to take a a few moments because this is how we can often perceive sickness and health. After this, verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so We land there because the way that we define it or our definition of sick and healthy is that the sick are the, quote, bad ones who break all the rules. We say, well, as long as we're not bad or maybe we're breaking some of the rules, but not all the rules, so at least we're better than than them, than those people, than they are. And we could turn down our nose on people or, or even if we don't verbalize it, we might internalize it and think that that's how we live. At least I'm not as bad as them. That's the sick, how we define it. And then the healthy, as we define it, is that the healthy are the good followers who keep all the rules. 
And so we look at this and we look at the story and say, okay, well, you know what? Um, I keep all the rules. I show up uh, on a Sunday most of the time and I, and I stand when I'm supposed to stand and I sing when I'm supposed to sing and I clap when I'm supposed to clap and I give when I'm supposed to give and, and, I, and I pray when I over meals and I, and I try my best to be an encouragement to people who don't know Jesus and, and I try to do all these things and I'm, I'm not doing bad things and I'm keeping all the rules. Therefore, I must be good with God. But if that's all that we think this is, then we're missing the point. So how we define it. Now, in order to dive in a little bit deeper, um, I want to just take us back to Genesis 3. Just, we're going to look at two verses, so just, they're uh, on the screen. But we need to look at two lies about sin in Genesis 3 in order to dive in to shape our story as we started with Luke 5, and then we're going to dive into the prodigal son in a few moments. The first lie that we see in Genesis 3 comes from Genesis 3-4, and it's, this is from Miles McPherson. I heard him speak this years ago, so it's not original to me, but give credit to where credit's due. But what he says is the first lie is that there are no consequences to your sin. And this is like, as we, as we signal to where we're going, this is like the younger son. The idea that there are no consequences to your sin. The idea that in Genesis 3-4, the serpent tells uh, Eve, he says, you will sure, not surely die. God says, hey, do not eat from, you can eat from any tree except from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. Don't eat the fruit from there. The serpent says, well, did he say you couldn't eat from any tree? Notice how the question is already a lie when it leads us down that path. But then he says, she says, no, we just can't eat from that one. He says, oh, well, you're not going to die. There's no consequence for breaking God's rules. No consequence for breaking God's laws. And if we live that out like the younger son, we then think that, we don't need anyone to tell us what to do because there's no consequence. And so if we live out of the younger son mentality, then we become people who think that we don't need a Lord to tell us how to live. Because we think there's nothing wrong. There's no consequences. Who's going to punish me? Who's going to be over me in order to tell me I'm wrong? And this is so prevalent within our culture. And if we're not careful, it could be prevalent within the church. However, the second consequence is the one, or the second lie, I'm sorry, is the one that we're going to land on a little bit more here that says, not that there are no consequences, but that you can be the one. You can be the one to determine right and wrong. You can determine what is right and what is wrong. This is moral relativism at its peak, as our culture says. This idea that, well, what's right for you and wrong for you doesn't have to be right or wrong for me. There's no objective right or wrong. There's no moral truth. It's your truth is my truth, and let's just not you know, hurt each other in the midst of it. It's this idea that we can just make our own decisions. And like the older son, who because he determines what's right and wrong, and he just, well, I keep all the things that are right. I do all the good things. I keep all the rules. Therefore, it's not that you don't need a Lord. When we live with this older son mentality of thinking that, that there are, um, we can determine what's right and wrong, we believe that we don't need a Savior because we can decide what's right and wrong. We can do the right, and we can be good enough on our own deeds to come to Jesus and to come to relationship with God, which is patently false. We see this in Genesis 3, 5, when the serpent just says, For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and what? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will know what's right and wrong. But the lie here is that we 
He wants us to think that we can be on the throne of our lives, that we could be like God as the ruler, the Lord, the Savior of our own lives. And anytime we live that kind of lifestyle, we recognize that we are going to have moments where we fall into the pit, we hit the muck and the mire and the mud of the pigsty in Luke 15, or the more dangerous option is that we don't even know that we're sick. And it's just an underlying underbelly of how we live our lives that we don't even recognize that we're in trouble in the first place. And so these are the two different lies that we look at here. And I want to land a little bit on the, the older son here. Because when you heard Luke 5 and said, Jesus said, well, he did not come, I did not come for the, sick, for the healthy, but for the sick. I don't want a show of hands, but how many of you naturally put yourself into the category of healthy and righteousness? How many of us thought, okay, because we do good things, we are in that sense of we are healthy. We're righteous before God because of our own good deeds. Because if I'm honest, that's the way that I originally look at it. I look at the fact that, oh, well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I do things pretty well. And, and we can justify our actions and think that it's our actions that will save us when it's only the action of our lion and our lamb that can truly save us. And so Timothy Keller, who I'm indebted to much of this um, information here. He, he wrote a book called Prodigal God, which is absolutely fantastic. If I, as your pastor, would, would recommend you to read one book, it'd be the Bible. But if I could have you read a couple other books, two or three of the other top books I would have you read, one of them would absolutely unequivocally be Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. Many of the quotations from here, I'm indebted to him for that, but I just want to give, again, credit where it's due. Timothy Keller says this in regards to the older brother mindset. You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, then you have, quote, rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own Savior. That we think, God, I do the right things. I come to church. I pray. I do this stuff. God, you owe me a life that is good. As if we are entitled to anything other than, what does Romans say? That the wages of sin is death, that there are none that are righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. So what we are entitled to within our own selves, within our own flesh, nature, within the original state, is we are entitled to death. But thanks be to God, he sent Jesus, we may have life. The wages of sin is death, but the grace of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so we look at this fact that, we cannot be entitled and say, God, you owe me, because the truth is that we owe him everything. And so we look at maybe how we define the sick and the healthy. Then we look at these two ideas that describe kind of the mindsets between the elder son and the younger son, the two lies we see in Genesis 3. And then we're going to kind of wrap around this idea here of how Jesus defines the sick and the healthy. So in your notes, how Jesus defines or Jesus' definition of the sick and the healthy. We're going to be in Luke 15, as I alluded to earlier. Um, I'm going to read uh, the first two verses to provide the context of who it is that Jesus was focusing on in this passage. Luke 15, verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Again, that same verbiage of this man welcomes sinners. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. Again, table fellowship meant relationship. And so for Jesus to have a relationship with these, quote, horrible sinners that are like those people who do all the bad things or the truly sick made those who felt healthy offended that he would get near them. But we see here that Timothy Keller talks about this idea that the targets of this story, the prodigal son and all of Luke 15 and the lost uh, parables, the three of them, the targets of this story are not, quote, wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus is pleading not so much with immoral outsiders as with moral insiders. He wants to show them that blind, their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. That it's when Jesus heard the, the Pharisees saying he still welcomes sinners and eats with them, that's when he tells the three parables about the lost. He talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in each one of those, we're going to dive into them a little bit more later. But what I want to do is we see the emphasis on the lost and who was his focus as he was sharing these stories. And so I'm going to read a long passage of scripture that we've, many of us have heard, the prodigal son passage in Luke 15, 11 through 32. I'm going to read all 21 verses in a row. Um, but what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you not to just turn your brain off because, quote, you've heard this before. I'm going to ask you to immerse yourself into the story. Find who you resonate most with, most which in the story. And I want us to, to hear this as if God was trying to reset and recalibrate our mindsets about things. So take a listen with me. Follow along if you're at the Church Bible on page 1625. If you have your own Bible or your app that you're using, that's fantastic. But... Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, there, were a man, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's a lot in that passage. That passage is a sermon. It's it's a series in and of itself. What I want to take the next few moments that we have together with is to look at how Jesus, through this parable, provides a definition of the sick and the healthy. Because Jesus shows us that, if we see here, the sick aren't the, quote, bad ones. And the healthy aren't the, quote, good ones. That we see in this passage that both the younger son, while he was often squandering everything, lost that closeness to the father. That from the increase of his distance physically, there increased a distance relationally. But then we also see that the older son, whose distance to the father physically was not any different, but the distance relationally was vastly different and it kept getting farther and farther apart. So what we see here is, here then, is Jesus's radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Because nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. This is the quotation there on the screen. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral behaviors can be every every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate and moral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. That we can be just as lost following all the rules as we can be by breaking all the rules. Timothy Keller continues, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking the rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. doesn't mean that everyone who follows the rule is rebelling, but if we find our identity in only following the rules rather than following the Savior and the ruler of our lives, if we think that our good deeds heaped up is enough to cause us to cross that bridge into relationship with God, then we're just as lost as those who have ran away. We are just as lost as those who have done all the wrong things because we're not making the right thing the main thing. We also see that Jesus talks about how the sick are humble enough, in your notes, to know that their need for Jesus, while the healthy aren't, and they miss out. 
that how Jesus defines health and sickness is not the deeds that they do, it's the state of their hearts. That those who recognize that we are broken, that we, are, we need Jesus, those are the sick. Those are the ones he came for. Those who think that they have it all on their own and they don't need any help, those are the ones that, quote, see themselves as healthy. But they're the ones that Jesus says, I, I can't help you. Because you think you have enough on your own to be able to do it on your own. He stands at the, door, at the door knocks, hoping that someone would open that door. And so we recognize in Luke chapter 18, I'm not going to go there, but it's the parable that Jesus tells of the idea that there's a, a, a Pharisee and then there's a sinner. And the Pharisee says, dear God, I thank you so much that I am not like this man here. I thank you that I fast twice a week. I thank you that I give of my tithes. I thank you that I do everything right. And thank you for not making me like him. And then right after that, this man, the sinner says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus looks at the two of them and he says, it's the latter. It's the one who recognizes his own need. He's the one that is right before God. Not the one who, quote, keeps all the rules, but the one who recognizes his need for the ruler in his life. And so we see this idea that I'm going to close with this last point on your notes. Well, before that, this idea that we cannot say we, you, me, us as a church, us as, a, as the body of Christ as a kingdom, we cannot say that the sick person is that one over there. We must say that the sick person is this one in the mirror. Because as we do that, once we truly understand our own need for God, our own need for Jesus, then we're someone who has the cure and we're sharing it with all those around us. We're recognizing it's not about our own ability to heap up our own good deeds and make that be good enough. It's recognizing, listen, my righteousness is filthy rags. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And guess what, fellow sojourner, fellow journeyer on this life, we want to come alongside you with this journey. Recognize that I am no better than you or no worse than you, but I know a God who is the best and sees that in you and wants to have a relationship with you. And he sent his son to be a lion who fights for you and a lamb who lays down his life for you so that you may have a right relationship with him. Will you join me on this journey? Recognizing that we are not a church filled with people, perfect people, but we are a church of people who've been changed by God to make a change in this world. And so let me take a, a, the last moment there on your notes. It says, the main storyline of Luke 5, 27 through 32, which is Levi and him eating there and the healthy and the sick, and Luke 15, is that what was lost was found and God throws a party. With Levi, he recognized he was lost. Jesus said, come follow me. He was found. He says, I'm throwing a banquet. I want as many people to hear about how I've been found by Jesus. And I want as many people to come and eat with me with table fellowship to meet the Savior, and the Lord of my life. And then in Luke 15, we look at there is the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Let's take a, a look at the pattern of how this breaks down. Luke 15, 3 through 7, it's the story of the lost sheep, that the sheep was lost. The shepherd who had lost him actively searches for him. The sheep is found, he throws a party. What was lost was found, throws a party. The story of the woman and the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. The coin was lost. The woman actively searches for him, goes out and looks everywhere for him, or for it, finds it, throws a party. 
But then the, the, the pattern changes a little bit when we get to the lost son. Because the pattern in the lost son is the son who's lost leaves. And the father keeps an eye out for him, but he doesn't with the same veracity and the same uh, uh, heart to just go and look every single place for him that the sheep, the shepherd did and the woman did. He keeps an eye out for him, but he lets him go. And then we see that when the father sees the son coming back, he welcomes him back in. He gives him the robe. He gives him the ring. He gives him the sandals. He welcomes him back in because what was once lost is found. And so then he throws a party. But if we look at the pattern, we look at this idea that with the sheep, the shepherd, and the woman, what was the one who lost actively went out to go searching for that which was lost. Then there was found, and then there was a party. With the father, if we look at the pattern of when the father actually actively goes out and pursues the son who was lost, which son was the one that was most lost? Because the pattern shows that the father kept an eye out for his younger son and welcomed him back in. But when he found out that the older son was gone, he actively searched and went out and reached out to him. So the end of the story is the younger son was lost, found, and there's a party. The, The moral insiders, not the immoral outsiders, the moral insiders that Jesus is talking to in Luke 15 We don't know if they enter into the party because they're lost. They may not see it yet, but they're lost. The father actively searches for him and the party's going on, but will they receive the invitation to have table fellowship with people that are those people like them? So this parable ends with more questions than it does answers. Questions like, will the older son recognize that he too is lost? Will the older son go into the party that's being thrown that he can join? Will the Pharisees recognize that they're lost too? And will they accept who Jesus is and go into the party? So Timothy Keller, he says that Jesus does not divide the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation. We all want to save ourselves by being either our own Lord or our own Savior and sitting on the throne. To, To using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it in different ways. And even though both sons are wrong, however, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and his feast. In other words, they're both lost, but he wants them to be found with his love and join the feast that's his party. Some of you today are like the younger son and think that there are no consequences to your sin, even the ones that no one knows about. And so you are living like you're the Lord and you don't need a Lord in your life. Some of you are like the older son who recognizes that I can determine or thinks that they can determine what's right and wrong. And in so doing, doesn't need a savior, doesn't need someone to help them because they've helped themselves. But Timothy Keller, closing quote, says that the gospel is distinct from these other two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved and everyone is called to recognize this and change. The only right way is the true way, the one way the way, the truth, and the life. So in some ways, for you, for me, for us, this sermon ends with more questions than it does answers. Questions like, will those of you who are living like the younger son, 
Will you repent and stop going away from the Father and come back in humility into the relationship with God and return to him? Will those of you that are like the older son, the one that is like me in many ways, will you recognize that you may be lost too by trying to keep all the rules just as the others are lost by breaking all of them? Have you been found by God and have you found that relationship that brings us hope, life, and love? Have you been found by Jesus? And will you accept who Jesus is? Recognize you're lost. Recognize you're found in him. And will you join the party? Will you celebrate with him? Because table fellowship means communion, means community, and means relationship. So no matter how lost we've been, we can always be found, and just as one, when one sinner repents, the angels rejoice, we see that the pattern of the loss is that they are lost, they are found, and then God throws a party. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, and I thank you for this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we are in this series, that we would no longer see the table as just a means to an end, that we would no longer see it as something that's just fueling us for where we really want to go, but rather recognizing that table fellowship relationship with you and with people is the end. It is the culmination of living our life here with you is to have a community and table fellowship in the great banquet of the kingdom of God in heaven. May we no longer think that there are people that are too far gone, that may we invite them to our table, as different as they may be. And may we accept invitations to other people's tables, as different as they may be. Because when we have table fellowship, it shows relationship. And in the same way that Jesus reset that for us, Lord, this meal that changed everything by recognizing that we too are sick. And if we are humble enough to admit it, Jesus, you are good enough to rescue us from it. So Lord, I pray for those of us who are lost. I pray that we'd be found. I pray that we would accept your invitation to the party. And may you give us the humility to do so in a way that pleases you and to bring fellow sojourners on this journey of life that they would come with us too. So they too can have once been lost and are now found and there's a party to celebrate. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, as we are going to be singing our last song, um, what I want to encourage you to do is, is respond in worship. What I mean by that doesn't just mean respond by standing up and singing a song. That could be part of your worship. Part of your worship might be sharing with someone next to you that you need prayer and, and you want to talk with someone. Maybe part of your worship is to, is to be bold enough to come forward and ask for prayer. Maybe for some of you, that moment of worship is just to, to sit and, and to just praise God without focusing on what anyone else is doing. I don't know what that is for you, but the invitation is set to come to the party, to come and rejoice, to come and worship. And I ask that you would worship God in whatever way you need to respond to what he put on your heart this morning. And so if you want to stand, let's stand. If you don't want to, no pressure, but respond however you need to. Let's worship together in whatever way God has called you to respond.